Yeah, well, I, I usually like mine pretty lukewarm, so <laughs> I pour it early and then I start drinking it. So. Uh, good morning. Um, for the sake of the online recording, we are. this is another lesson in a series that Pearl Presbyterian Church has been doing during Sunday school uh, on the attributes of God, and we've been covering them really on a surface level, more devotional type, uh, and one of the things that we've had as our guide other than Scripture has been a book by Mark Jones called God Is. And uh, we're, we're more than halfway through all of those attributes. This morning, the attribute that I'll be attempting to cover and maybe bring some clarity to is the attribute of God's justice. And we as Christians uh, can confess and attribute to God that He is just, that God is justice. And that is something that for us, for the Christian, for those in Christ, is a sweet truth. Um, and it, hopefully we can bring that to our minds this morning as we uh, prepare for our formal worship service. But before that, I want to open up with the scripture passage, and then we'll have prayer, and we'll dive right in. I am turned to Job chapter 34, and I'll be reading verses 10 through 13. Job 34, 10 through 13. Starting in verse 10, it says, Therefore, listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do wickedness, and from the Almighty to commit iniquity. For he repays man according to his work, and makes man to find a reward according to his way. Surely God will never do wickedly, nor will the Almighty pervert justice. Who gave him charge over the earth, or who appointed him over the whole world. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we are so thankful uh, that we have good weather outside. Uh, we are thankful to you as, as even yesterday, O oh Lord, the sun was out, the wind was stirring, uh, the birds were chirping, the bees were out pollinating the flowers, all these things, Lord, for your saints. Speak of your glory and your honor and your sovereignty, and the way in which you control everything and orchestrate everything for your glory. And this is our hope, Lord. Our hope is not in man. Our hope is in what you've promised. Our hope is that you are always faithful to your promises. We ask, O oh Lord, that even now you will prepare our hearts and our minds by your Spirit for our formal worship service, to receive the ordinary means of grace on this Lord's Day, a day that we, uh, Lord, believe to, that we should set aside as different than the other six. That we should set aside, Lord, in the pattern that you have given to us as an example in, on your own in creation. And that you worked six days and on the seventh you rested. Nourish us today, Lord. Refresh our faith. For those who draw near today and are weary, may you give them rest. May you give us encouragement. Help us now, O oh Lord, to understand what it means that you are a God of justice. You are a God of righteousness. It is in your Son, Jesus Christ's name, that we ask these things. Amen. What are some words that come to mind whenever we hear the word justice? It's kind of a hot word in church and culture on the news right now. What are some other things that you think about when someone's discussing the topic of justice? Just 
right? Is there anything that justice implies? So maybe righteousness or, or maybe fairness, true, being fair, um, maybe law, right? There's some sort of standard for us to make judgments against, for us to say whether something is right or wrong. Like, unlike some of the other attributes we've covered, like maybe omnipotence or omnipresence, um, this is a word that is used a lot in our culture. Uh, this is a word that both Christians and non-Christians like to talk about inside the church and outside the church. This is a word that um, you'll hear quite, quite often if you watch any news outlet. Um, and so it's all the more important for us to understand this word, to make sure that um, we have a good definition to make sure we're not allowing um, outside influences to define that word for us, but we allow Scripture to. And what's great about the word justice, even though people uh, grossly misunderstand it, is we can look to God for our definition. We can look to His Word for that definition, and we can know that our understanding, as long as it is based upon Scripture, is the right one. I didn't stick very closely to Mark Jones throughout this chapter. Uh, There will be some quotes I draw in at the end of it that I found very helpful. But in doing a lot of reading uh, from various dead theologians or Reformed guys, there's also a common theme and a common word in Scripture and, and in the way that they describe this attribute with righteousness. So sometimes justice and righteousness will be talking about those words interchangeably uh, in today's lesson. But of all the definitions, the one that I found most helpful for me uh, was by a theologian named Herman Bavink, and he defines justice in this way. And we're going to modify his definition a little bit because, to be fair to him, he gives this definition within the context of God's justice towards human beings. But we're going to broaden out this definition, but I want to give it in its original form first. Herman Bavink says this, In all cases, justice is the constant and perpetual desire to grant every person his or her due. One more time. In all cases, justice is the constant and perpetual desire to grant every person his or her due. And we're going to modify that. Instead of saying person, we're going to change it to say this. In all cases, justice is the constant and perpetual desire to grant everything its due. We'll come back to that definition as we make some of the doctrinal distinctions that I want to make. Um, and we're going to follow a similar format that the book does. And first, we're just going to try to understand the doctrine. First and foremost, we need to understand that justice, no matter what the world says, it's a part of the essence of who God is. Like these attributes we're discussing, justice is part of who God is. That's how we can say God is justice. And it's also interwoven with all the other attributes that we've been discussing. But just to emphasize this one, let's turn to Psalm. Turn there or listen. It's just going to be two verses from Psalm 97. Psalm 97, verses 1 and 2. And we're just looking at justice within God right now. We have not gotten to creation. We'll get there, but we're just looking at how justice, where where the source is. Psalm 97, verses 1 through 2, reads as follows. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the multitude of isles be glad. Clouds and darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. 
from the psalmist, we learn that this term that we're discussing today is foundational to who God is. This is how we can say that justice is a part of God's essence. Man, in the garden, before the fall, Adam, he was created good and righteous. But that righteousness came from God. No one made God righteous, right? He is righteousness. He is justice. So that's an important distinction. Um, that's why it's important whenever we say the word justice, or you hear it in society, if, if the person doesn't have an understanding of who God is, you really can't begin to have an understanding of what justice is. From our confession, Westminster chapter 5, and we're actually going to make an early application. Um, I thought that was fitting. From West, the Westminster Standards, chapter 5 is on providence, and Robert's already discussed the sovereignty of God, but I, I wanted to highlight this because it does mention justice, and it, does, it is the source of our hope as Christians. God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence according to the infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. For us as Christians, we know that all things work together for the glory of God. And if you go back to Herman Bovink's definition that justice is the constant and perpetual granting of everything that is due, So justice cannot be understood apart from God and what he's revealed justice to be in his word. That's foundational. We can talk about injustices in society, in politics, in the, in the things and events that happen in the world. We can rightly talk about justice and injustice in those contexts. But we have no foundation to discuss it unless we at least have a starting point. And the starting point is the fountain of justice, and that is found in God. That's our first distinction. The second distinction is not only do we see God in his essence as being a just God and a righteous God, we also see this distinctly within each person of the Trinity. Uh, And this is important for us to understand, but before we make the actual distinction, there's three scripture verses I'd like us to look at which highlight righteousness and justice within each individual person of the Godhead, of the Trinity. So John chapter 17 And we're actually going to come to John 16 as well. And then if you want to also hold the spot, I'm going to be in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. So John 17, and then 1 John chapter 2. John 17, verse 25. This is in the midst of Jesus Christ praying to God the Father. What does he begin the verse with? O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. Hold your finger uh, on John 16, because we're going to flip back there for God the Spirit. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with 
the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. John chapter 16, verse 8. And again, what we're doing is we're looking at a few scriptures out of many that highlight these words righteousness and justice and relate them specifically to a certain person of the Trinity. John chapter 16, we find a discourse of Christ explaining that the Holy Spirit is the helper. We learned about that actually this past Wednesday night with the, uh, in the kids' class, that the Holy Spirit is our helper. Christ, in speaking about him, so that he, or the pronoun here, is referring to the Spirit, says in verse, chapter 16, verse 8, says, And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Why is it important for us to highlight that each person of the Trinity individually exhibits justice and righteousness in some way? It's because apart from creation, justice exists within the Trinity. And how can we say that? Well, we know, and we've already gone over this from other attributes, that all things work out for God's glory. That each person of the Trinity serves to bring glory to the other person of the Trinity. Everything that God does is about bringing himself glory. And so God is just and righteous in doing that because he is the only one that is actually due all the glory, all the worship. So if we think back to Herman Bovink's definition, in all cases, justice is the constant and perpetual desire to grant everything it's due. If we confess that the scriptures teach that God is due all the glory, all the worship, all the honor, all the praise, then it makes perfect sense that within that our triune God, there exist justice and righteousness. So justice is part of God's essence. Justice is part of the Trinity. We can see it in each person of the Trinity. And the third distinction we'll make before we get to Christ is that God's justice implies a standard or a law. What what measure do we have to see how God's justice and righteousness are expressed? Well, we have his word. And he does that by telling us these are things that are righteous. These are things that are wicked. So there is a standard, and that standard exists within God. For a scripture proof, and, and you may want to stick a ribbon or a finger here for because we're going to be in Romans chapter 3 for a few verses. I want us to see this in scripture that God's justice and his righteousness are evidenced by the standard that he sets, by his law. Romans chapter 3, we're just going to read verse 21, and it's going to um, spoil <laughs> our next point a little bit, but at least we'll need to catch the second half of the verse. But we'll read the full verse. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law was revealed, speaking of Christ. But look at the second half of the verse. I'm going to read it again. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. We need to make an important distinction here. Though God's justice implies a standard or a law, God is not under a law like we are. We are the ones who have been commanded to meet a certain standard. We are the ones that are commanded to be righteous. But God is the standard. God is the law. It's not as if he serves underneath some law, as if there's some law or standard above God. God is it. God is at the top. 
And Romans chapter 20, sorry, chapter 3, verse 21 indicates to us that the way we as Christians know his standard and know the standard for right, true righteousness and know the standard for true justice is by what God commands is righteous and what God commands is wicked. Just a side note I'd like to make. Not only does God require us to meet the standard, but he also asks us to mold our human relationships around these same concepts of righteousness and justice, right? Rulers and kings and governors are commanded to punish wickedness and to reward righteousness. As a proof text, let's just look at one, one area, Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 1. If you want to keep Romans 3 marked, that's really where we're going to be, but there, we have some scriptures to look at in between now and then as well. And really now with this third distinction we're making, we're really talking about how God's justice is distributed outwardly. We not only see that we are commanded to be righteous, but we see here that even in our human relationships, there's an expectation that I act justly and righteously towards my fellow man. Deuteronomy chapter 25 verse 1 says, If there is a dispute between men and they come to court, that the judges may judge them and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. Now moving on, but staying in this same umbrella of God's justice implies a standard or a law. That means that when the standard is not met, justice demands or necessitates punishment. That means when the standard is being met, it demands or necessitates a reward. So uh, the two $10 words that we're going to use as categories for the way we as human beings, creatures, so we see justice in God, but how do we see justice unfold and distribute out to creation? We see it in two ways. The first way is retributive or punitive, and that basically means God's justice is distributed in a retributive way whenever there is a violation of his standard, or a violation of his law, which we said necessitates punishment. What are some examples of this from Scripture? Think of Adam and Eve. They were made in righteousness. They were given a standard. They broke the standard. They violated the justice of God. And what happened? God retributively kicked them out of the garden. Think of Noah. Sin and wickedness was abounding over all the world by human beings, and God flooded the entire earth. A multitude of people dying of, of drowning and, and all the turmoil that was caused from a worldwide flood. Even the angels, when they fell short, they were cast out. Think of Egypt and how God's people were submitted to approximately roughly 400 years of slavery, of torment, and the plagues that came Wickedness and punishment and God's retributive justice are all over those things. Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, two scriptures I'll read real quick that just highlight the fact that God will punish all wickedness. Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. I'll read that real quick. Exodus 34, 6 through 7, and then Proverbs 11. Will someone look up Proverbs eleven twenty one? That'd be helpful. And I'll uh, go ahead and read Exodus 34, 6 through 7. Exodus 34, 6 through 7. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful 
and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And then will someone read Proverbs 11.21? Join forces, the wicked will not go unpunished, but the prosperity of the righteous will be delivered. We could go to 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 verses that discuss how God punishes wickedness. And it all gives evidence that out of necessity, because of who God is, because He sets the standard, when the law is transgressed, punishment comes, or else He would not be a just God. If sin went on unpunished, if his standard was continually broken and no judgment and no punishment ever came, we could not proclaim that God is just. We could not proclaim that God is faithful. We could not proclaim that God is a righteous God. And that brings us to the second category, a tongue twister, remunerative. Whereas this deals with laying down punishment on the basis of what we've done, this word deals with laying out reward on the basis of what we've done. And we who are Calvinistic, who are confessional, should immediately see a problem. What is our problem? Well, part of what we confess the Scriptures to teach, what is outlined in our confession, is that we acknowledge that we are all deserving, not of reward, but of punishment. We all have sinned. We all have transgressed the standard of justice and righteousness that God has set. So there is a dilemma that some, and even within Christianity, have a problem with God being a punishing and wrathful God. Um, So let's, back to Romans 3. And we're actually just going to look at verse 23, and it simply just says, very familiar verse, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the dilemma is, how, if all are deserving of punishment because of God's standard of justice and righteousness... How do we even have this category? If you look back to the flood, the example we gave of God's retributive justice, was there not also reward in Moses being saved and his family receiving mercy and allowed to continue on? The same goes for Adam and Eve, though they experienced the punitive or the retributive justice of God. If you remember back to Genesis 3, they were also promised that the seed from from Eve would be the one that would crush the head of the serpent. They weren't killed immediately. They were cast out of the garden. You can see there's still some type of reward that is given for faithfulness all throughout the Old Testament. But how can that be if Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, which tells us God's not a God of justice unless that sin is dealt with. The answer is Christ. How can God's justice, remember what what Bavink says justice is, God's constant and perpetual desire to grant every person what he or she is due. How can we harmonize that with the grace of God? What do we say the grace of God is? Just a simple definition is unmerited favor. How can a God who is just, who always constantly and perpetually gives you everything that you deserve, yet still at the same time be gracious, which is 
unmerited favor, meaning he gives you what you don't deserve? Well, the answer is because what Christ has done. So some people say that a punishing, wrathful God cannot be also a gracious God. How? How do we reconcile this? And it's because God's justice is not, God's justice and grace is not, God's justice towards us and and saving some is not based on our merit, but it's based on his faithfulness. This is important. It's based on his faithfulness to what he has promised. You see, if God has given his word and he is a just and holy and righteous God, that word will never fail. And because God freely chose to save some, because God freely chose to save some, it is in perfect harmony with his justice and him being faithful to his word. To be faithful to that, regardless of our merit. His righteousness and his justice in saving some is based solely upon what he has promised on his covenant. Justice and grace are not opponents, and those that pit them together forget that God does not owe us grace. You see, they say God is unfair if he's going if, if, if to only save some and not save others. God does not owe us grace because of what we do, but rather God can justly give us grace because of his covenant. In keeping his promise to save, God can justly carry out salvation for some and eternal damnation for others. In studying this, the, the obvious question, like we said, that even some people who, were, who are antagonists towards the election of God is, how can God both be just and be gracious? And we've already answered that it is because of Christ. But there's no better way to word it than Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. I'll read verses 21 through 26 from Romans chapter 3. And then I want to make a little side note about the doctrine of election. I know Robert's already given a lesson on God's sovereignty, but I think there's something important to note here because a lot of people, even within Christianity, have a problem with God punishing, have a problem with God's wrath. And actually next Sunday we're going to talk about God's anger. Let's have a reading of Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, and listen how God himself reconciles the idea of justice and righteousness and grace. Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation, a beautiful Christian word means Christ washes us of our sins with His blood, and He satisfies the wrath or the retributive justice of God for the elect being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Not his unfairness, his righteousness. Because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness. That he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
This is why our salvation is so sure. This is why we can have hope. This is why we who are in Christ, who place our faith in Christ, know that this was poured out upon Christ on our behalf. This is how God can still be just to us because those who are in Christ are robed with the merits of Christ. Think back to the definition of justice from Bobby. Constant and perpetual desire to grant every person his or her due. Now, if we are clothed in the merits of Christ, which are perfect, spotless, sinless, do you know what we've done? We've met God's standard. We've met God's standard for justice and righteousness because of Christ. That, therefore, He can justly and righteously save us. Hopefully you're seeing this, how this is knit together. Now, an important point on the doctrine of election. Some people say, well, if God chooses to save some and not save others, He must be unjust. But the problem with that is, if God could be perfectly just and righteous in, contem- in condemning us all to hell, and we know according to Romans 23 and many other verses in Scripture that we all have sinned, we all have broken the standard. This is what we are due. If God would be perfectly just in condemning us all to hell aside from His promise, how can anyone ever rightly charge God with being unjust for saving some? And the simple answer from Scripture from our confession, from historical Christianity, is no one can rightly charge God as being unjust for saving some. Because he, if he chose not to make that promise, would have been perfectly just in condemning us all. Some points of application. Just three points, and then we'll we'll work ourselves towards a close. And here's where we'll have some quotes from from Mark Jones that I thought were were very helpful. So number one, I think this is just a good starting point. We need to remember, for those who don't have faith in Christ, for those who are outside of Christ, they they stand on their own merit. Uh, They don't have Christ's merit. They don't meet the standard. They transgress against God's justice, against His standard, against His law. And the only thing, the necessary thing for God to be just is eternal retributive justice. John chapter 3 verse 36. You've got to love those verses that just are able to summarize everything way better than we can. Um, put things bluntly, remove all questions. This is God's Word. John chapter 3, verse 36 says this, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. I'll read one more that goes along with this application because I think we're doing good on time. in Acts chapter 17. Verse 30 through 31. Acts chapter 17, verses 30 through 31. Sometimes we see injustices in the world and they don't get punished like we think they should. Sometimes we may feel like injustice is being done to us, but we need to remind ourselves uh, with Scripture, and this is a good one to be reminded of. 
verse 30. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance to this to all by raising him from the dead. In studying God's justice, we understand that as sh- and where we get confidence in our salvation, there is equal confidence for all those who reject Christ or who have a false faith that does not bear fruit, that they stand under the retributive just- wrath and punishment and justice of God. It's sure. It's just as sure as our salvation, just as sure as we're sitting here. Justice is a part of God's essence, and he would not be a God of justice if he allowed wickedness and unrighteousness to go unpunished. Mark Jones actually gives a quote from a guy named Thomas Watson with regard to how saints at times can seem to experience injustice from the world, not from God. We know we can never charge God with being unjust, but also how it seems sometimes the world rewards wickedness and punishes righteousness. Here's how Thomas Watson puts it. Now things are out of course. Sin is rampant. Saints are wronged. They are often cast in a righteous cause. They can meet with no justice here. Justice is turned into wormwood. But there is a day coming when God will set things right. He will do every man justice. He will crown the righteous and condemn the wicked. If God be a just God, he will take vengeance. God has given men a law to live by, and they break it. There must be a day for execution of offenders. A law not executed is but like a wooden dagger for a show. At the last day, God's sword shall be drawn out against offenders. Then his justice shall be revealed before all the world. The wicked shall drink a sea of wrath, but not sip one drop of injustice. At that day shall all mouths be stopped, and God's justice shall be fully vindicated from all the cavils and clamors of unjust men. So the first application is, We need to examine ourselves. Is our faith true? Is our faith really in Christ? Is that consistent with what Scripture says will be the fruit of those who place their faith in Christ? Because if not, we stand before a just God who punishes all wickedness, all unrighteousness, and who constantly and perpetually gives us what we are due. Go back to that definition. Application number two. And this is really sweet for the Christian. God never unjustly afflicts the saints. We've all gone through things that, in our, from our perspectives, are terrible. Hardships. Uh, there are Christians in China who are persecuted for their faith day in and day out. Um, we've experienced loss, um, whether that's been with children, whether that's been parents, financial turmoil, all these things that can happen. And, and the temptation, even for Christians, is to, is to wave our finger at the Lord and say that he is unjust. But we know that's not consistent with his character. We know the scriptures never attribute God to being wicked or to being unrighteous or to being unjust. And I want to give a quote, uh, and this is actually from Mark Jones himself. It's from page 190 of the book. But the glory of the Christian religion may be seen in the fact that when we are stricken, 
we can continually affirm the justice of God simultaneously with his mercy, wisdom, grace, goodness, and the rest of his attributes. He only ever acts toward us in a manner consistent with his whole being. The blessings that we receive were purchased not by us, but for us by Christ. We are simply beggars who receive the rewards freely from the hand of our just God. His merit leads to our gift. It's not based on our merit that we are saved. We need to be reminded of that when we go through these turmoils of what we really deserve and what God has graciously bestowed upon us, and that is reconciliation through Christ. And that bleeds in nicely to the last application. I found this to be most appropriate considering today we gather for formal worship and we're about to step out of this small classroom and and, uh, go before our Lord in worship. And I found it a good mindset that we should all be reminded of through this lesson of what we actually deserve. What we actually um, have to offer before God. And it's nothing but merits that deserve God's punishment. Yet we're here. Yet we're worshiping Him. Yet we're listening to a sermon. Yet we're, we're praying to Him. And all these things, again, aren't accredited to our own merit. We're doing it because of the merit of Christ. We proclaim that God is just, and yet we stand unpunished. But it's because he is just in paying what is due to the merit of Christ. So remember what we deserve. If not for God's justice, giving us what, we, what is due, it's not for his justice to his covenant promise through Christ, which is how God freely chooses to showcase the glory and honor that he is due. When you think of justice, think of God constantly and perpetually granting what is due. So in closing, I just want to read that that passage in Romans chapter 3 again. And then I'll close us and dismiss us in prayer. Romans 3 verses 21 through 26. The perfect harmony of God's grace and His justice. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness Because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate that at the present time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge and we confess with the scriptures, the psalmist, that you are a just God, that you will punish all unrighteousness, that because you are just and you are righteous, anything that falls a millimeter below your standard, below your law, can justly be condemned and punished. We acknowledge, O Lord, and we confess, Romans 3.23, that we all have sinned and we fall short of your standard. We gather together as humble saints, 
as sinners, O Lord, not bringing and wearing our own merits as granting us access to worshiping you, O Lord, but proclaiming and placing our faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you, O Lord, for teaching us in your word that your grace and your righteousness and your justice are not opponents, but they all ascribe to you faithfulness. They all ascribe to you that all things work together ultimately, Lord, for your glory. Give us worshipful hearts this morning, Lord. Soften our hearts that can become hardened by the world and the deceitfulness of our flesh. Unclog our ears and open our eyes that we might be good listeners to the ministry of your word this morning. Help us to keep this day even when we leave from the services, O Lord. Help us to be mindful and set aside this day as different from the rest. A rest unto you, O Lord. It is in Christ's name that we pray these things, and it is his merits that we boast in. Amen.